Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. Good morning and welcome to a uh, panel which we titled some months back, Beyond False Balance, Social Scientists and Environmental Journalists Tackle the Manipulation of Environmental News. Um, my name is Tom Hayden. I'm the director of the Environmental Communication Program, Master's Program at Stanford University. Uh, and I am beyond delighted to be able to introduce this morning's panel. Um, from, uh, from me moving outwards, I guess that's my left, your right, um, we have Emily Atkin, who, uh, did I hear somebody cheer? Because you should. I thought I heard a whoop. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that was me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, fabulous. Uh, Emily is joining us from Washington, D.C., where she is the uh, founder and author and uh, animating force of the newsletter you should all subscribe to called Heated. Uh, next to Emily is Patrick Chandler. Patrick is a, a communication scholar uh, at CU Boulder, and um, we are uh, excited to have Patrick here with us today uh, to share some of his expertise, both on uh, using art and creative communication as a way to break through communication barriers, uh, as well as uh, on, on the uh, persistent phenomenon of false balance. Uh, next to Patrick is Perla Treviso. Perla is uh, the environmental affairs reporter for the Houston Chronicle. Uh, and uh, Perla is relatively new on the uh, environment beat and comes to it after a, a time covering the uh, borders and immigration beat. And I'm excited that Perla is here for many reasons, but not least of which is she may be the only reporter I know who's moved into environmental journalism because it's less contentious than her previous beat. <laughs> Uh, and at the far end of the table from me, Adina Abel, uh, Abelis, sorry, uh, who is a communication researcher at Stanford University uh, and has expertise in uh, Americans, uh, not just Americans' beliefs about climate change, but also Americans' perceptions about the beliefs of other Americans about climate change. And while that may seem a little meta, I promise it is, uh, it gets to the, the heart of the matters we're discussing today. And in fact, the idea for this panel uh, grew out of conversations Adina and I had at Stanford. Um, and uh, perhaps the last thing I'll say about myself is I started out as a journalist and transitioned into academia about 10 years ago when I followed the development of uh, communication scholarship and you know, sort of science of science communication stuff quite closely, uh, as I suspect many of you have, looking for pearls and ideas and, and, and uh, insights that I could apply to journalism work and uh, frankly have been somewhat frustrated in that search uh, in finding material that is ac actually applicable to me as a journalist. Um, and Adina is one of the first communication scholars I talked with who actually gave me a moment of epiphany of, oh, I really could use that uh, in my journalism work. So uh, part of what we're here to discuss today is are there insights from the academic study of communication that are practicable in uh, environmental journalism, um, but also in our pre-discussion 
um, on the phone the other week, we came up with um, what really should have been the title of this session out of our conversation, and it was Grief, Hope, and Anger. Um, this is emotional stuff that we're dealing with, and um, let's, uh, let's hop on into it. Maybe um, I'll just ask each of the panelists to tell you a little bit more about, uh, about themselves and what they bring to this conversation, and Adina, why don't we start with you? Oh, <laughs> sorry about that. I, I sat down here something. so Emily would have to start, but okay. So um, hi, everybody. So thank you, Tom, for pulling us together here, and I'm excited for the conversation. Um, before I was decided to go get a PhD in communication, I spent a lot of time working on trying to connect science to policymakers and science to the media, and I really focused on climate change science. Um, and for a while, it felt like you know we were doing a good job, and then after 2009, I kept feeling like, maybe the science isn't enough anymore. Um, so I went back to school to try and understand this and I approached it from a different angle. And so what I do now is I study public opinion on um, climate change and other environmental attitudes. And if you look at just straight up public opinion, you find that the majority of Americans agree global warming's happening, climate change is real, and this includes the majority of Democrats and Republicans and independents, we also all want the government to act on um, reducing greenhouse gas emissions from businesses and from power plants, and we are all supportive of um, renewable energy and investments in renewable energy and research. But I found um, that public opinion, while it's important sometimes, at least in a representative democracy that we're supposed to still be in now, public opinion is, is important to decision makers, but it's also important to the public and how the public is gonna form their beliefs and how the public decides to act. So if they perceive that the majority of Americans don't think climate change is real, or they perceive the majority of their tribe, so Democrats, Republicans, to not care about it, they may either adopt that belief that they think the majority of their peers hold, or they may keep their beliefs to themselves because they don't want to stand out or, or act like they're not a good member of you know, their political party. And so that could fuel um, misperceptions. And what I found, so I decided to determine, well, are we misperceiving the public? And so it turns out if we just look at believing in, in that climate change is real, um, three quarters of the country agrees it's real. 90% of Democrats, 60% of Republicans agree it's real. Um, and by the way, that 75% is the same number of, um, or same percentage of Americans that believe the earth goes around the sun and vice versa. So it's like an accepted fact in the United States. But if we ask people, well, what do you think? How many Americans think it's real? Or how many Democrats, how many Republicans think it's real? We vastly underestimate that by 20 percentage points. And in fact, we perceive that the majority of Republicans don't think global warming is happening. So that could be problematic for the majority of Republicans that actually think it's happening. They might not want to speak about it or act out on it. And so I wanted to explore this a little more and try and understand, well, why is this? And there could be many reasons why people form their perceptions the way they do. But one of those could be this narrative that we're all swimming in in the United States today about how much Democrats and Republicans disagree with one another. And so what I did was just a little experiment exposing some people to that narrative, like Democrats, Republicans disagree, but also a narrative that said, actually, there are quite a number of things that we agree on. And as soon as you just open this door to this possibility that we agree on some issues, people are more likely to perceive a majority of Republicans to think global warming is real. And that, in turn, actually changed some people's beliefs or how they expressed their beliefs. They were more willing to express that global warming was real. 
And so when I think about that, I think, well, how we're covering climate change really matters. We often like to say we're in the public against each other. We like to say most skeptics are Republican, but we're missing out on the fact that most Republicans aren't skeptical. So I think that's something to think about when we're swimming in this broader narrative of disagreement. We could decide to highlight things where we disagree on issues, but there are also a lot of issues that we agree on, like I talked about before, that it's real, that we want the government to act. And maybe that can have an impact. So that might have been too long, but. That was precisely the right length. <laughs> Parla? Yeah, so I, I spent more than a decade covering border immigration issues in Texas, Tennessee, and Arizona. And so over all this time, you know, it's a, I kept thinking of how can I write this story for, you know, I, I like to call it for the skeptical reader and, and not to tell people what to think or, you know, or, or say this is what you should do, but actually to just provide the information and have them at least read through the end of the story and not just see my byline or the headline and automatically assume that that's not something they're gonna be interested in. And when I switch over recently to the environment, you know, there's a lot of parallels. They're, they're both uh, highly politicized issues that a lot of times you don't find, uh, you, you don't resolve them not because they don't have solutions, so-called, but because there is not in the political interest to resolve them. They're um, highly emotional. And so, you know, the, the story so far that I've written at the, for the Houston Chronicle, the ones that garner the most negative attention is anything that has to do with climate change or sea level rise. And so it has me thinking again of how can we write the stories not to change the information or to omit it, but is there, a, you know, the way that we express it or who we quote, how we quote people. We have a lot of control of how we form the stories. And it just has me thinking, I think for both immigration and environment, you know, we find better ways of communicating because otherwise, who are we reaching with our work? And, and I think based in, in Houston, in Texas, a very uh, largely conservative state, you know, do we want to keep preaching to acquire or, or should we try to find ways to reach that, again, skeptical audience? Thanks, Perla. Patrick? All right. So I'm a third year PhD student at the University of Colorado and I'm in the environmental studies department. I, I came to see you to work with a project called Inside the Greenhouse that is an initiative that focuses on using media, performance, and fine art to communicate about climate change. And I, uh, I sit at the Center for Science and Technology Policy, of which Max Boykoff is the director, and he and Beth Osnes are my advisors. Uh, and together we focus a lot on ways of sustaining hope and fostering collective action, which is really close to my heart because I have a background in environmental education that brought me up to Alaska where I was teaching intertidal ecology and marine biology and then was asked to take over as the International Coastal Cleanup Coordinator for the state. So I was focused on helping uh, communities all over Alaska to organize cleanups, get the resources they need, and um, help them get the, the plastic off of their waterways. And I did that for, for a few years and went on some larger cleanups where we were taking uh, up to 5,000 pounds per quarter mile off of beaches of the trash that would end up there year after year after year. And I saw that 
every year we would do that and then we would go to conferences and tell people what we'd done in order to get funding to go out on the beaches to collect the plastic to go to the conferences to tell people what we had done over and over and what we weren't doing is changing that situation um, so I brought up uh, an artist Angela Pozzi that I'd met at a conference um, to create a set of sculptures in Alaska out of the marine debris we were finding on the beaches. And all of a sudden, doors opened. We were able to talk in places that weren't available before, in museums and science centers and conferences where they said, yeah, come in, bring what you've created. And there, there are places that if I would have gone up and said, hey, can I talk to you about how much plastic is on the beach? They would have said, no. But that really showed me that the arts combined with the sciences open up a door and overcome some of these communication barriers that are, are inherent in these issues. I went down and became the education director for the organization that Angela Pozzi founded, uh, the Wash to Shore Project in Oregon. And we toured these large-scale marine debris sculptures around the state to, uh, I'm sorry, around the country to... Uh, to the Shedd Aquarium and the Georgia Aquarium and the Smithsonian, uh, the National Zoo. And I, I was really impressed by the doors that they opened. But it needed to go a step further because people would come and look at these sculptures and go, oh my god, this is incredible. And, and they would get it. They would really get that issue standing in front of those sculptures. But what we hadn't developed at Washed Ashore was, a, okay, you get it? We've got that window open? Here, this is how you can get involved in collective action to move forward. And I saw people go away with more weight than they had come in with because they did get it. And we hadn't given them a way to sustain hope. Those, those comments of, oh, you should use fewer water bottles, you should use fewer bags, weren't enough. It's really about collective action to move forward. So that's why I moved uh, to see you to do this work on um, looking at creating a framework for uh, bringing art and science together to offer to communities and organizations interested in that work. And um, we're also doing a, a study at the Center for Science and Technology Policy, following up on some of Max Boykoff's work, looking at how climate change is portrayed in the media in the last 15 years to reevaluate that sense of balance. And I'm also uh, publishing with Max and Beth, focused on that art-science integration. But the question I really have is this, this focus of moving beyond false balance, to me, is about the responsibility we have to foster collective action and sustain hope. And uh, I'll leave it with that. Thanks. Thank you, Patrick. Emily? Hi. I'm a little nervous because this is like the thing I, <clears throat> this is the topic I think about the most and that I'm probably most passionate about is um, how to tell the truth on the climate change beat and do it in a responsible way. Um, but so I'll just uh, say a little bit about my experience first. Um, I went to journalism school. Um, I graduated in 2011. I, uh, my mentor out of college was, I was really lucky, I had this awesome investigative journalist mentor. His name was Wayne Barrett. And Wayne Barrett was one of the first journalists, if not the first journalist, to investigate Donald Trump. Um, he was, uh, it was when Trump was a real estate broker in New York City in the 1980s and early 90s, and he was just this like, 
con artist, uh, like awful a real estate uh, a real estate guy. And uh, Ray- Wayne wrote this whole book about Trump. He wrote books about Giuliani just doing this, you know, on the ground reporting. And Wayne's reporting was always motivated by anger because Wayne was really pissed off that there were really rich people, uh, powerful people all over New York City taking advantage of powerless people, of the most vulnerable communities, the poor communities, um, the black communities, and, um, and Wayne was pissed. And Wayne took that righteous anger to the doors of the power brokers. He knocked on their doors and said, answer these questions. Why are you doing this? Is this in good faith? And then he took that, he wrote books, um, and he said that was the purpose. He always said that that was the purpose of being a journalist, right? Um, I have a quote that I try to, uh, that I kind of try to think about all the time, because Wayne passed, actually Wayne passed uh, the day before Trump's inauguration, which was, it was very fitting. Uh, They had a, they had a contentious relationship. Uh, (laughs) uh, His It was on the back of his funeral card. It said, um, our credo must be the exposure of the plunderers, the steerers, the wire pullers, the bosses, the brokers, the campaign givers and takers. So I say stew, percolate, pester, track, burrow, besiege, confront, damage, level, care. And I love that quote. And I feel like climate change journalists, for the most part, I mean, there haven't been that many of us for that long. but for the most part, we've approached this story like it's some story about like a problem that's wrong with us as human beings. Like, oh, we, you know, we have such a problem. We have such a problem, um, you know, understanding climate change and being able to act, and it's just like an inherent human nature problem. And it's not. It's not an inherent human nature problem. It's we've known about the effects of climate change since at least 1989. In 1989, the EPA put out a 400-page report about the expected effects of climate change uh, now. And it's basically the same as what we're seeing right now. But at that same year, and on that same year, Republicans started started acting, um, started started introducing bills. But then that same year, the fossil fuel industry uh, created a group called the Global Climate Coalition which spent the next 13 years um, spreading uncertainty, um, telling politicians that they had, to, they had to emphasize uncertainty. And basically, it's because of a lack of accountability for that that we have now had this much delay, that we now have 11 years to solve this problem instead of 41 years to solve this problem. So I honestly think that you know, I've spent a lot of time in both liberal and conservative media. Um, I've been a climate change reporter since 2013. I worked at Think Progress. I worked at Sinclair Broadcast Group. I worked at The New Republic, and now I'm independent. And um, I would just say that the one thing that I've learned is that we are arguing with bad faith actors for a lot of this. Um, we're trying to be fair and balanced, but we're giving 50% of the time to a lot of people who are not arguing in good faith with us. And what does good faith mean? Good faith means you're accepting the science and you know you accept the implications of that. And that's it, you know? That, that's really it. And there's so many people that are just lying all over and that should make us mad. Um, and it's journalists' job to expose that. I mean, I don't think it's our job to handhold the public and say like, and say, you know, 
oh, I want to make you happy with the story. I want to give you hope. I want to give you optimism. It's not our job. We're journalists. Our job is to inform the public. We've been manipulated to believe that we are being alarmist by simply stating the science. We've been manipulated to believe that we're not being fair by exposing deceit. Um, and we wonder why the public isn't convinced that climate change is a problem. So I think that journalists need to realize that this is an opportunity for really great investigative stories. And it, it's not like, I'm not trying to chastise people. I'm trying to say, like, let's do really awesome journalism. Let's expose corruption, because this is not a problem with us. This is a problem with a very few powerful, moneyed people. Um, yeah, so that's me. Thank you, Emily. And so you see the alternate title for this session, Grief, Hope, and Anger. Um, <laughs> not, not, well, no, and I say that with appreciate, with deep appreciation. Shaky. Well, as you say, righteous anger, it, it um, yeah, it warranted, I think, in, well, uh, uh, let me not editorialize, let me, let me, uh, uh, say that when we first named the panel, I had actually been working on the impression that false balance was, uh, Emily refers to them as traps, these uh, intentional manipulations of the traditional practices of journalism uh, to trick us into, uh, by doing our best work, actually uh, serving uh, the preferences of bad faith actors. And false balance has been the classic example of that, where uh, the vast majority of, of informed scientists agree uh, that climate change is real, happening now, caused mostly by us, and uh, uh, is a serious problem, and there's still time to act. Uh, and, and one or two uh, endling loonies uh, will, with a PhD will still say they disagree, and you uh, put them on the same platform together. Now, I had thought that we were well past that. Those of you who share gray hair with me might remember the 2007 meeting of this society uh, at which we addressed false balance uh, in a robust and head-on way, and there was quite a remarkable final plenary in which uh, editors of major uh, journalism outlets all sort of, sort of pledged together that it was the end of false balance. Uh, so I came into this panel planning with the premise that false balance at least was behind us, but what next do we have to watch out for in terms of these, these traps laid by bad faith actors? Uh, and then I went to the lunch session yesterday. <laughs> you were there too. <laughs> so we are not beyond false balance, tragically. Um, I want to... Um, I guess I want to ask, I just want to float this. We've heard from some panelists that uh, hope and uh, let's call it a positive affect to our communication. It can help break through barriers to communication and lead from communication to action. And we've heard from other panelists that readers are skeptical and that we live in a world that is populated uh, not just by good faith actors, but by bad faith actors, and that we are, as journalists, subject to uh, constant and persistent attempts at manipulation. Can we square those two perspectives? Is there a place where hope and anger come together? And Adina, I see your confident nod, so I'm gonna start with you. Well, I, uh, I think there's so many things to say. Um, one, Emily, I'm excited for what you're doing, and I think exposing what's really happening is really important. I think one of the ways that um, the anti-climate change coalitions have 
um, done such a good job is because they were able to manipulate the perceptions of what the public wants and so doubt. Um, but what I think is a good part of the story is while they were successful in some ways, they weren't completely successful. And so I think um, when talking about, I mean, I think everyone needs to read what you're writing about, but I think then what, um, what Perla brought up is that people are going to react negatively if it's communicated in a way that's not um, allowing them to read and interpret and understand that information. And so that is, I think, where we have to really think about how maybe communication research can help telling these stories, but in a way that it's not just to the people that are already pissed off, but to the people that are even doubtful, right? So they can engage and listen and feel like you're also talking to them. Um, so I think that's one thing. And then I would say regarding the the fear or hope or anger and hope, I mean, the way that you were talking about it is um, people are going to react differently to your communication, and some people are going to be depressed or scared about the future, and that's not necessarily a very useful emotion if you don't have anything to do with it or to do about it. People generally don't like to feel that emotion, and so they're going to try and get rid of it in one way or another. One way could be like just forgetting about it and giving up and saying, well, there's nothing I could do. Another way could be like, well, it's not real, because and then that way you don't have to worry about it if you don't think it's real but another way is you give them a tool to do something about it and then that tool provides them hope hope that there's something better in the future and so the when I think about hope and grief or despair and anger you can't have hope without being worried about some detrimental future and so those two together can actually motivate you to these different actions so that's how I think about it Thank you, Adina. I, I have a question, I, I think, for the journalists, uh, which is, is it within bounds of your understanding of journalism ethics or practice that you can even think about giving readers not just the information, but also uh, essentially the emotional arc that Adina is suggesting, that you take them from despair and anger through to hope through to action? I think a lot of what we do is storytelling as well, right? But with, with facts, or that's a form of, of journalism, and I think this is certainly part of that. I think we, it's so easy, and, and coming from the immigration background, it was so easy for people to say, that's happening too far away from me. It's too, happening to someone else. Why should I care? I'm fine. We're fine. We should care about you know, take care of your people first and then worry about others. And I think the same with this. If we can connect people to people, you know, we, we have a lot, as, as, as it, um, Adina was saying, you know, we, we do have a lot more in common. And, for example, one story about climate change I did that did not lead to the, you know, we've, it's been raining since I was a little kid and we've been having hurricanes was this um, longtime environmentalist in Houston who knows that in Texas it's a regulation system, non-starter, people, you know, having having land and being a landowner is a very important thing. And in Texas, vast majority of the coastal land is privately owned. And so the, he was with researchers coming up with, like, how can we address, how can we preserve land in a place like Texas where a lot of it is privately owned? And they came up with a new nonprofit model where people who want to offset uh, their carbon footprint can donate to this group, and in turn, they give grants to the, the landowners to preserve the land. And it's not a, a sequestration program in the traditional sense because, again, they're dealing with a very different reality in that part of Texas. But I did talk to this rancher, and he talked about his efforts for the land. And, and you know, and it's, and you, there's going to be a lot of disagreement, but 
but just by talking to him and making the story about one individual and one family who does not want to break the land and want to make sure the future generations have access to it and, and, and participate in conservation movements, it actually, I, you know, I did not get those emails from the climate change deniers, and I was talking exactly about the same thing. I was talking about climate change, but I was not saying climate change and the earth is going to, you know, we're all going to die in, in 50 years. But and so I'm thinking, you know, how, how many other stories like that can we tell where we are, we're using the science, we're using the research, but maybe, you know, look at the polls and say, you know, Republicans agree that climate change is real, but they're concerned about X, Y, and Z. And maybe we find stories about individuals and address those specific things. You know, climate change is such a big topic, but maybe we find ways to narrow it down and, and zoom in and in very specific things, we can start addressing some of those issues and, and maybe you know, maybe start changing minds or open minds. Uh, Patrick, I'd like to, thank you, Parla. Uh, Patrick, Patrick, I'd like you, um, to ask you specifically about how persistent false balance has been, because part of your research, I believe, is, is revising this international uh, study of false balance uh, on climate in the news media. Do I have that right? Yeah, I, um, <clears throat> pardon me. I've got to say that we are in the process of, of taking a look at that situation right now, and without having concluded that study, um, I can't give a perfect answer to, to how that system has changed or not. Uh, in my initial sense, we've gotten better, but uh, those results probably won't be out until next spring. Uh, we've expanded the study to look at um, five countries and 15 media sources. So it's, it's quite a bit bigger scale. It's gonna take us a minute to go through and, uh, and code everything from those five countries and 15 media sources that includes climate change or global warming from the last 15 years. But I look forward to telling you more about that in the spring. It's uh, appropriately uh, cautious in front of a room full of journalists who <laughs> might quote you. <laughs> um, would you mind if I respond to some of the last couple questions? Since, I would be since delighted. I kind of sidestep that one. <laughs> so um, I want to say that I work with a lot of students both at the college level teaching and uh, I'm also piloting a curriculum um, with fifth grade classrooms now on that art science integration topic. Uh, but my biggest concern is that we stop at awareness and anger because I, I see this this place where we've gotten many times, Occupy Wall Street's a good example, where people went, ah, we're angry. And we went, yeah, you are, and you're right. And then it kind of fizzled. And I see these youth climate action strikes, and we're like, yeah, you should be angry. You're right. But, but what I don't see is that next step to, okay, what are you asking for? What change are we going to make based on where you're at? So in, in that, that realm of um, how, how do we mesh these two perspectives, to me it's kind of a both and. I, I do not think it's a bad thing to have these articles and focuses that are like, get pissed, get aware, here you go. But there are ways to say, and let's also write an article on something that gives a path forward. We don't have to sugarcoat anything. We don't have to say, yeah, here, be aware, be angry, but it'll be okay. No, hell no. 
That's not where we need to land. I think it's just more of a, yes, get there and then. Don't stop there. Please don't stop there. And creating those, those perspectives that enable those pathways for collective action to move forward. One example, uh, next weekend I'm going to uh, present and work with folks at Project Drawdown, which is a really cool project that's compiled the top 100 solutions to climate change, looking at uh, carbon reduced cost and cost returned. And that project brings up some really important things that we are not talking about in the broader scheme with climate change, such as how much food waste and diet impact climate change. Um, what it means to, to really look at that system, how much refrigerants play a role. These aren't the things we're talking about on that subject in large part. So for me, it's not a, how do you massage one article to do everything? It's a both and. Thanks, Patrick. Um, Emily, I, I, it, it strikes me. Oh. <laughs> it's really dry it's here. quite a collection. It is very dry here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, Emily, it's, bring them over. Keep them coming. Keep them coming. Uh, I'm going to add mine to the collection. That Anger and hydration. Clustered. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anger and hydration. Tell us more about that. Mm. <laughs> um, I, I honestly think that we think so much as journalists about how we should be presenting stories, what what emotions we should be sparking with them. Um, and, and I think I sort of... I touched on this a little bit when I was talking earlier, but I, I honestly think that the we have to go back to square one on how we've been covering climate change as a collective before we even think about that. Um, I think that as a collective, climate reporters have been sort of reluctant to take on the fossil fuel industry as a bad faith actor because so many people rely on it and we rely on it for everything. Um, but the beat that we're on is not um, why electricity is good for humanity, it's climate change. So we're covering a problem that it just keeps getting worse and will keep getting worse unless we do something. That is the objective fact, right? So in the, in the realm of climate change, you know, we can talk about the fossil fuel industry in a way like, you know, they're potentially helping to, to work, you know, transition to renewables or whatever, but we also have to be very honest about what causes climate change, which is what the science says is it's extraction. It's not recycling a plastic bottle. It's the extraction of the materials to make the plastic bottle. It's not that we're eating the meat. It's that the meat process requires a lot of methane emissions. It requires a lot of nitrogen-based soils. Um, if you go back to the science, it's all, our biggest problem is extraction on the supply side, not the demand side. And so we, so much journalism focuses on demand side problems. Oh, we're eating so much, we demand so many flights, we demand this much for our population, but that's not how you solve a problem. And it's no wonder that the public thinks that this is some problem with us, and that's why everyone gets so despair and grief-filled. It's because they're like, oh, I'm having too many kids, I'm eating too many uh, hamburgers, I'm, dr I'm drinking out of too many single-use things, when it is those industries that have not only resisted and spent billions of dollars against regulations that would actually help us solve this problem, um, and this is not an advocacy position I'm taking, this is just a, this is a fact. Um, the, 
they've also, like the plastic, the plastics industry, for example, embarked on a huge public uh, information campaign to get people to recycle more, to take, and that was explicitly to take the heat off of their responsibility to produce less plastic, which is crazy because that's where the carbon emissions comes from, the producing of the plastic. So journalists need to, it's a hard concept to understand because you have to read a lot of science um, to understand that and be like, oh yeah. But that's the kind of, that's I think what we need to start as journalists is sort of reframing the problem. Climate change is a problem caused by extraction. That is a science, not caused by, it's, it's something I say a lot in my newsletter is that we all caused climate change, but only a few people caused the climate crisis. Like we, are, we all caused, you know, the carbon emissions. Everything we do causes carbon emissions, but only a few people caused delay of action to reduce that. There's only, so that's where I think we need to start just as, and, and, then, and then that way we don't really need to think about how that makes people feel because it's just the truth. I think that this whole conversation makes journalists uncomfortable a lot. It makes me uncomfortable a lot because it's like, how should I be making people feel? It's like, I never took a class in that. That was never something a journalism teacher taught me. It was just expose wrongdoing. Speak up for powerless people. Don't give a crap who says what about it. Like, if it's the truth, it's the truth. So that's, I think this conversation makes a lot of people uncomfortable sometimes because it's like, what emotion should I be conveying? It's like, I don't know. <laughs> Who cares? I, I, <laughs> I, I totally get that. I've shared that discomfort, and I think Adina has something that will either make us more comfortable, comfortable. Or, comfortable. or outraged. Comfortable. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> Let's see uh, which way it goes. No, so again, I, I really, um, what you just said really resonated with me. So rather than focusing on what the individual can do, um, focus on how we can change the system. And all I wanted to say to that is that that's where public opinion is as well. If you're looking out to see what kind of policies people make, people are approve or support, sorry, that's the word. Um, they don't want things that bother them. They don't want like a carbon tax. They don't want to have to change their way of life. So you could argue that's either because, well, they don't want to have to spend more money or because they don't actually think that'll be effective in solving the problem. What they do support are the large ones where the government is mandating changes to the system. And again, we could argue that's either because it won't have as much as an impact on their daily lives, or they actually think that that could have a broad-reaching um, effect. But the point is that the public is in support of addressing the industry, the power plants, um, how we get around transportation, but not necessarily our, like changing our individual ways of life. I think that you know maybe one way that that we can address it a little bit more is you know climate change. It can be such an abstract concept, right? You know, you can say Houston's going to face 70 more days of a heat index of 113 or whatever it is. And I think for a lot of people, it's hard to well, what would that mean? But maybe we find the stories of the outdoor worker who then has to start a shift at four in the morning to be done at seven, or you know, maybe find more of those individual stories. And really, you can talk about flooding. And you know, I wasn't there for Harvey and. 
and you just hear these horror stories, but I did not experience it uh, personally. So maybe, uh, maybe that's another way of, of tackling this, of, you know, instead of just talking about the science and another IPCC report, finding those individual stories to really bring it home for people, regardless of political affiliation, and it's just one human or one family or one community that was affected by a very concrete way, and, and that's climate change, but you're not just saying it's getting hotter or the icebergs are melting. Thank you, Perla. I, I think that maybe we'll open it up to questions from the audience. Um, we have a. Can I address one thing Patrick uh, said real quick? Of course. Uh, let's scratch that. And um, I think let's see what people on the panel have that they need to address before we open it for questions. Oh, I just <laughs> wanted to address one thing you said. Can I? Oh. Um, one, I just was thinking about the Occupy Wall Street uh, comparison that you made. Um, and. I think it's I think it's a good comparison. The one thing I think it misses is that um, climate change is only going to get much worse pretty quickly. Um, and if we're seeing action now at this scale, you know, a, a problem with you know uh, a problem with banking or Wall Street or markets it, markets it's not as visible as this problem is going to become according to all mainstream science. Right, um, and so I don't particularly worry too much about momentum in the sense of activists or, you know, is this something that's going to fade? I, I think that um, I, I think that climate change is going to force this issue more and more, in especially in the coming next years, and that's why it's so important for us to be having these conversations right now, because still there might not be that many climate change reporters around. Um, but in 10 years, I think this room is going to be packed, filled with climate change reporters. And so we need to figure out how we're doing this right, right now. Um, and I also, I, I would just want to go really back really quickly to the point that I made in the beginning is that, um, that this is an opportunity for a lot of great stories and a lot of great journalism. Um, and, you know, I'm interested to hear, especially from audience members, how I was talking about this in my beat dinner last night, but just how to tell stories in a more creative way. Because uh, I think climate change in particular does not fit the mold of journalism story. You can't cover it the same way you would cover any other issue. Because unlike every other issue, climate change um, impacts it, no matter who you are. You are affected by it. Your family is affected by it. Everyone you love is affected by it. You cannot ever be completely objective, so you cannot approach climate change like you would approach any other topic. So I think it demands, it's a, it's a subject that demands creativity. And so like I don't have all the answers for that, but I would love to hear other journalists' ideas on how to be creative covering a crisis like this. So. Absolutely. Patrick, would you like to uh, respond or make a comment? I mean, uh, the luxury of being up here is that I'm sure all of us and most of you we're happy to just talk and we can just talk about things and ah so i'm going to keep this brief in order to allow time for uh audience participation but um i i guess one thing that strikes me in this realm and i agree uh if we don't pay attention to this anger and that fizzles the 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 physical implications of climate change are going to push this but still when people are, are angry and politicians hear that anger and, and we're in this system from the, the standpoint of sitting at the, the Center for Science and Technology Policy and that policy realm, just people pissed off 
doesn't necessarily move policy. And so I think that not presenting a biased perspective, but writing those articles that say, okay, what does action look like? What could it look like? What policies are on the table? What do we need to focus on? What can you focus on? How, how do you move that, that push forward, that action forward into, uh, into something meaningful, into trying to, to push that dial? I think that is something we can do and have a responsibility to do. I will prepare myself to take questions from the group and um, hand over to Adina while she um, expresses that emotion. <laughs> and I'll be speaking about emotions. Um, I, I just wanted to briefly say, in response to um, do we care, or how do we know what emotions we're creating in the audience, and do we care, I think that's a question for everyone here that I'm really interested to see what other people think. Because I think the point is you are going to have an emotional response. And those emotional responses um, will affect how people interpret and understand the information you're providing and what they're going to do with it. And so I, of course, think it's important. But I'm always thinking about you know how our words like, create emotions, um, not you know, it's, so it's different. But I, I am really curious how people think about that when they're writing, if at all. We have, as you can see, a difference of opinions uh, on the panel, but I think that what we do have is a, a full panel and I believe a full room full of good faith actors. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, uh, oh good, hands are going up all over. I'm going to do my best to um, bring the microphone to you. We'll see how long it goes. And since you're close to the microphone, why don't you go first? <laughs> I knew there was a good reason to sit up front. Um, I'm Mira Subramanian, independent journalist. And um, first of all, thank you. This is a really, really great talk. And I love the diversity of opinion. I agree with all of you. <laughs> um, I did a series uh, nine. <laughs> no, I will not pick a side. Um, I did a nine part series for Inside Climate News that was looking at conservative perceptions of climate change. So I was dealing definitely in the territory of there and parallel in terms of like bringing those stories to life. and and trying to deal with the, the reactions that I was hearing from conservative people on the ground to the anger and the, this is the science, how can you be so stupid to not just get what's going on? Um, and so my question is, um, I, and then to, to Patrick's point, I heard Naomi Klein and uh, 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 Kianga Yamada-Taylor speak last week in Princeton, and they were talking about the lack of democratic spaces that exist for us to have those conversations about what to do. What do all the kids do when they finish the climate strike? Where do they go? And, I'm, and it made me wonder about millennials and how much time people are willing to sit in rooms and have long, difficult conversations about decision making. I say as a board member of SUJ, um, <laughs> you know, it takes work to do this. And so I, I just wanted to know if you thought to any of you whether we can do anything to help foster those spaces to help further the conversation, to kind of like bring all of these elements together? I don't have a full answer to this. I think that, first of all, um, what I've learned from doing a newsletter and fostering a community within a newsletter, it's actually kind of been a really unique experience. It's made me realize that I can't, my work can't be for everybody, and not, no, neither can any individual journalist's work in this room. 
we're going towards this space in journalism now where people trust individual reporters more than they trust institutions. People curate their feeds around individuals more than they go to a homepage of a website and just look. Um, and so I think it's, I think it's, I do feel a responsibility to be accountable to my readership, which I consider a community, um, and listen to them and what, and, um, and tailor my coverage to what resonates with them, what makes them feel more informed, what makes them feel like more engaged citizens. And I think that that's something that all reporters can do with their readerships um, and to be accountable to them because that's our job anyway. Our, that's always been our job. Um, but just paying a little bit more attention to, I mean, I don't know if this totally answers the question, but in, in terms of like, right. I mean, in, in journalism, I, like, all I know is that the only way that I, that I know that I've tried to do that in journalism is to, I have a section of my newsletter called Hot Action, and I ask uh, I, for, a, <laughs> for a day when I'll like report on something that's messed up, right? I'll be like, what do you think, what do you think we should do about it? And then I'll solicit action, uh, suggestions from readers and put it at the bottom of the next newsletter. Gives people a voice, they can, it gives them a way to talk to each other. Um, and that's been cool. People have really liked it, so that's one thing. But yeah. Maybe we need to cover more boring meetings. <laughs> yeah. It's a good. Uh, it's a. Uh, it's a really good question, and um, uh, I don't think there's one answer to it. For myself, looking at this science art integration piece. I've, I've brought it to museums, town halls, parks, lots of different places, but settling into that question, what is an equitable space of community now? It's really tricky. The answer I came to for my work were that schools are one of the few equitable places left, where I found that if we created something to share at a school, right now with what the curriculum we're piloting, it's a uh, embodied in performance space around climate change and resiliency solutions to give youth voice and engage the community. And I found that if you do something in that venue and ask parents to show up, parents show up from different political backgrounds, from different viewpoints, from different places, that's still an equitable space. And I was deeply grateful to see that. And I, I wonder what opportunities there is, there are to, to work in those spaces from a journalist perspective, um, even at the college level, how to, to work in places where you still get a large diversity of opinion and people come together and, and schools are, are one focus for me. You know, I think especially traditional, you know, quote unquote media has been, uh, it's been a big challenge that we're not engaging enough with our readers, we're not engaging enough with the communities I know. Um, you know, I, I believe that us journalists should be out there in the community more. We should talk at schools, churches, uh, be invited to groups because we, we write the stories expecting readers to come to us and find this, go to our website or pick up a newspaper. And I think we need to do more of the reverse, meet people actually where they are. And I think that applies to this as well. You know, be whole panel discussions, do storytelling events. Uh, we were experimenting with putting up a play based on an investigation. You know, find these other ways to to reach those audiences because for too long we just kept expecting people to to come to us 
And I just add one more quick thing. Um, one of the things that I, I get concerned about is nobody talks about climate change, um, like with their friends and family. People don't do that often. And so um, one idea is just try and encourage people to talk about it. And so working with like zoos and aquaria and other um, informal education settings, they're always asking, well, what can we do? What should we tell our visitors to do? And I'm suggesting just have them talk about it. Like, so make it an okay and not a taboo subject. Thank you for that. Let's um, see. Let's go. Uh, you also are close, and I'm going to come to you next. Oh, and uh, uh, thank you, Mira, for remembering this. But I'll remind everybody: please identify yourself when you ask your question. And uh, we're coming to SEJ members and journalists first. Yeah, I'm Margie Bauman. I'm an environmental and fisheries reporter in Alaska. And my question to Patrick is: Are you responsible for that wonderful sculpture in front of the? Port of Kodiak. Did you work on that? The question was uh, about a particular sculpture in Alaska, and I'm curious for the answer too. <laughs> so uh, the the way that particular sculpture was created, it is an octopus. It's pretty cool. Um, it was uh, created by Bonnie Dillard's class of high school students, and Bonnie Dillard's a, an amazing teacher. Uh, who does a lot of those types of initiatives. When I brought Angela up to the Center for Alaskan Coastal Studies where I worked, we held a workshop in which Bonnie attended and brought some of her students. So I, I have a connection to her and that work. Um, the Washed Ashore sculptures were actually at the Denver Zoo, I think 2006, so some of you may have seen them there. Um, and in DC, if you're uh, in the Sands Ocean Hall at the uh, Smithsonian Natural History Museum, you can see one of the Washed Ashore pieces there. But uh, yeah, I, I know that sculpture. It's a good one. One other follow-up question. When you were up there, was that, before, was that before or after the Japanese tsunami? So the question is about uh, uh, the tsunami and whether uh, Patrick was there in the aftermath. That's, uh, yeah. That's a whole can of worms when it comes to Alaska and marine debris and environmental issues. Um, I took over that position about a year before the tsunami happened, and uh, when it did, it really was one of the most deeply impactful events of my life. Um, we received 60% of the debris from that event on Alaskan coastlines and had really no ability to respond, um, and it was devastating and heartbreaking. And at the same time, I was getting calls from media from 10 countries asking about radiation and found limbs. And I said, those are not the issues that we're concerned about here, right now. And it was so deeply difficult to get around those big buzz questions to the actual issues that we were encountering. So yeah, I was there. It was a hell of a thing. I'm going to come next to uh, Lindsay here. Hi, I'm Lindsay. I uh, run Southerly, which covers environmental issues in the American South. And um, I, first, I, really quickly, I, like Mira, I agree with all of you on so many things. And I wish we had this conversation at every conference for like the last five years. <laughs> um, it's so necessary and thoughtful. Um, I, so in my reporting and editing, I have thought a lot about how often the media, particularly national media, talks about whether people believe in climate change, and that's sort of like the headline grabber, like this percentage of people in the South don't think climate change is real, and they're the problem. And I, I think I've been um, 
contemplating a lot how much I think we underestimate how angry people are. Um, and they might not be angry um, about particularly around climate change, but they're really pissed that, um, you know, they got laid off from their coal company and they took their paycheck and they sat on the train tracks for two months, you know, a group of coal miners did in eastern Kentucky um, really recently. And that is part of the climate conversation, um, as is, you know, farmers that are pissed that their their crop yields were ruined for this whole year in the Mississippi Delta. And I just wonder if you all, if anyone, journalists and not could talk a little bit about how we approach audiences in their anger and their um, how maybe we underestimate them in the way we approach stories or research. Okay, I'm back. Uh, the question is about audiences who are, are angry for a number of reasons, uh, and maybe picking up on the theme of uh, that Emily mentioned that what we are experiencing now is only only going to intensify. In many cases, we are both covering and uh, and covering for stories for. Uh, people, communities, audiences who are traumatized and will only become more so over time. Um, what do you do with that? Yeah, I think about, obviously I think about anger a lot. Um, and, while I, and while I don't think, you know, I've, I've said that I don't think it's our job to, you know, handhold readers. I, I have thought a lot about readers' anger, my anger, and how do I make that um, positive and not toxic? Because talk, like, anger, has the potential to be such a toxic emotion. And um, and I think it's really important to approach, especially people who are already angry about stuff that's already happening to them, um, to validate that anger with your coverage, but also approach it with both uh, compassion and knowledge. Um, anger is not toxic, in my opinion, when it, it has both of those things. So compassion for their plight, but also knowledge about what, why that plight has happened. So um, if you can give angry readers both compassion and information while, while validating their pissed offness, I think that's the best way to approach it. Um, I'm, I, I don't say that it's not something that I thought of. Um, it's something, you know, I, when, I was, when I was introducing myself, I talked about Wayne Barrett, my mentor, and how angry he was all the time. But, but Wayne was a really great person. He was never mean. Wayne was, Wayne was the most compassionate person, right? And he, he loved people. And you can be angry on, as long as, and he was angry on behalf of others. So you use your coverage to be pissed off on behalf of those people. His mentor, Wayne's mentor, Jack Newfield, um, another investigative journalist in New York City, he worked at the Village Voice. He has a great quote in his, um, in his autobiography about anger. And it, it goes, uh, compassion without anger can become merely sentiment or pity. Knowledge without anger can stagnate into cynicism and apathy. But anger improves lucidity, persistence, audacity, and memory. So it's the combination of those three things that actually motivates people into action, um, that improves their, like, improves their lucidity, their persistence, their audacity, their memory. It's, you know, nothing has ever been done by a bunch of Griefful, like filled, depressed people. It's angry people that that do things, right? Um, so as long as you're fostering anger in a in a good way and it's behalf of other people, it's validating. It's full of compassion. I think that's actually a a great emotion to try and stoke in stories. Um, you know, uh, yeah, it it motivates. It is anger is catalyzing, 
and grief is paralyzing. So if you're going to go with one, I would say just validate fully. Just a very brief add to that, and that is that um, some of our conversation, some of the panel has been about the different things that we're feeling and, and these different realms, but truthfully, I think anger with hope equals action because if you have anger without hope, then it can just be simply destructive. And hope without anger can just leave you feeling placated. But it, the combination of the two is really where you see a huge potential to move forward and take steps. Let me see if I can help. There we go. And I think those are the stories that we need to be telling more, right? I think the best stories are the ones that surprise readers. And, and, the, and I think we, for too long, we've keep we, we continue to cover communities, us versus them, and, and as outsiders. And I think we need to do more of those stories of, you know, it's easier to fight the find the environmentalists fighting climate change. But, you know, it's a, a little harder because we're not usually um, part of, of, of diverse communities to find the stories of, of people being affected by climate change that you normally would not automatically think of. And I think those are the stories that we need to foster and highlight more and go beyond the, the headlines of Republicans, anti-climate, Democrats for climate. Adina, did you have a thought on that? Okay, um, I have unfairly favored this side of the room, so let me shift to this side of the room and um, Sir, maybe you, and could you come to the microphone so we can... Could you come to the microphone for the recording, please? I can do that. Hi, um, Tom Morton, uh, K2 Radio in Casper, Wyoming. And um, some of this is sort of going over my head a bit because when you talk about extraction, Wyoming is extraction. 40% of the nation's coal, whole bunch of oil. We used to be the Kuwait of the world until I think the uh, teapot dome, uranium, oil, gas, uh, and a bunch of other things. I know I'm forgetting. If we did not have the coal uh, boom that we had in the early to mid 2000s, we would not have a school system. We would not have a school system. No school. Well, we would have schools, but basically it would be the kind of stuff that you hear reported out of Detroit, okay? So the thing is, is that, uh, speaking of the, the lady from the south with the people on the train tracks, Black Jewel back at you, because we had the fourth and the sixth largest coal mines in America. They filed for bankruptcy on July the 1st, closed the mine, sent people home. And that still is working its way through the courts, and I would need a PhD in theoretical physics to figure out where it goes. So the deal is, is that those people are angry, but the deal is, is if I just report, and I'm going to be doing this with uh, what's known as the war on coal um, from a previous session, if I just do that, no one's going to listen to me, and they're going to listen to the other folks that we have on K2AM uh, Hannity, Limbaugh, and our morning guy, who morning show host, who literally calls this a cult. He will use that word, cult. So, so, so the deal, the question, the question is, how do you deal with this when you're talking about extraction? Because you were talking about people's lives. Okay, the question is about uh, people's lives and where the economy intersects with environmental issues. I think it's a place where all of us have spent a lot of time uh, thinking. Who would like to take that first on the panel? 
Emily. Um, well, the first thing is that I would just um, repeat what I said before, which is always approach your readership with compassion. You, it is your job as a journalist to um, to be representative for your for your constituency, your readership, and that means talking to them, showing compassion for them, validating their anger at um, at people who have been pushing for climate change regulations, trying to uh, trying to take their jobs away because because that is the reality. The reality is that regulations to fight climate change will end the coal industry, it, w along with other things, right? But it is also your it is also your job to inform them that 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 is the reality. That if we want to solve climate change, um, that that will need to happen, um, and trust that your readership will trust that you're giving the facts to them. Um, I kind of come back to this a lot, which is that, um, and, and you know, also report on how how that's going to uh, how different jobs could come in, different opportunities, all that kind of stuff. But you can't not report the truth because you're afraid your readership won't trust you. You have to you have to make your readership trust you. For some reason, the uh, people in Wyoming, West Virginia, they really trust the Rush, Rush Limbaugh's, the uh, the Hannitys, all that. And all you can do is try and have more integrity and be a better journalist and have faith in the public that they will. That, that they'll respond to that. Um, that's That was always what I loved about journalism, um, was that it's based on an inherent faith in, in the public that your, that information will be more powerful than misinformation. Um, and you know, a lot of the truth is, I haven't done much reporting in Wyoming, I've done a lot of reporting in West Virginia, and a lot of the truth is that the, you know, coal bosses, the people at the top of these organizations have done a great job validating their workers' anger and telling them who to be mad at. Um, and journalists have not done that. I mean, the, the people at the head of the industry want to keep their industry going, so they say, you know, be mad at these regulations, be mad at this. Um, and, and they do a good job at directing that anger. So how do, how do, you, how do we do it? I think it's just report the truth. but. And I think part of it is also, I think this is where solutions journalism can apply. And there's, there's a solutions journalism network and this idea that, you know, a lot of times we investigate and, and just talk about the problems. But as journalists, we do a lot less in solutions. It doesn't mean to just do the fluffy feature on something, but approach it with the same, um, you know, uh, what are the the pitfalls? What are the shortfalls? What are the challenges in distributing this? But you know, you you do the story highlighting the problem in terms of coal, for example. But you also offer, you know, maybe highlight programs that are transitioning. I think I, I saw a story recently about beekeepers and some of the former coal workers were being retrained to bees. And it's not, of course, going to solve an entire cities or entire you know regions problem. But focus on on those little things as well and investigate what maybe other countries that have transition and how they're doing it and how what can we learn from that and and i think it's part of what patrick you know you offer is not just the coal is gonna you know we do i think most everyone agrees that there has to be that transition from coal but you don't leave it at that you keep reporting on that your investigation is not done when you talk and, and report on how the the problem is with coal and if we want to solve climate change but what's that path forward 
And I, I just want to add, um, it sounds like there's a problem of trust. You think maybe they won't want to listen to you and they want to listen to the AM radio. Um, so one thing I would do is what Perla had talked about before and um, don't talk about climate change. Don't talk about climate change. Talk about what's happening. Um, and I actually, I was thinking, because I saw the, um, the panel before on disasters and how to cover disasters, which you're in. Um, and it's really getting the people to tell their stories, inviting them to share their stories. So that's acknowledging what's happening to them, which we also heard about here. Um, and I think exactly this, the idea of solutions. So what does our future look like? So rather than channeling anger into who are we gonna be angry at, and it's that cult of people that are talking about climate change, don't mention climate change, and let's channel our anger maybe into thinking about what the future looks like. I like that a lot. I see a question here. Let's see if this will reach. Thank you. Thanks to all of you so much. This is a great conversation. Uh, my name is Allie Budner, and I'm a reporter in southern Colorado for the Mountain West News Bureau. And <clears throat> I'm just wondering about this issue for journalism ethics in terms of talking about the issues going on, but then like you were saying, Patrick, you take it to a point and what's next? You know, how do you offer people uh, an idea of what to do, how to act, um, how to sort of catalyze, take, take the, the catalyst that they're, um, that they're getting from the information and take that forward into action. And as journalists, we um, are trained and sort of drilled to not tell people what to do. Even, I mean, even to make suggestions in a way sort of goes against the training of journalists, at least in traditional journalism. I know solutions journalism kind of offers some different models. But um, I like what you offered, Emily, about this idea of putting a newsletter out there and then saying to readers or listeners, what do you think? And then coming back and, and creating that as a dialogue. But I'm curious for all of the panelists, you know, what you would say to the field of journalism, you know, how do we how do we participate um, and still retain our integrity? Um, but how do we participate in that uh, process of of you know catalyst? The question is about maintaining journalistic integrity while also engaging with uh, what we know about how. Uh, people respond to the stories we write. And that was the animating question really for this panel, so thank you very much for asking it. And with five minutes remaining, let's have uh, incisive uh, yet uh, epiphany-inducing answers from the panel, please. All right, uh, I'll jump in and, and say I think that the, the way to do that can be informed somewhat by the policy realm and an idea of honest broker communication in which what you don't need to do is is present what people should do. It's just about presenting the options that are available honestly and saying what, what collective action pathways exist. You don't need to say, you should do this, but rather, these are all the ways that we could address this problem, including doing nothing, which is absolutely an honest option. So I think that there is a definite way you can present that without situating yourself with bias. 
And I think going back to the solution state, it's it's not as presenting, you know, you should do this and it's going to solve all the problems, but you, you look at it with the same critical eye that you would look at any other story. And I think it's just, um, you know, once you finish that investigation is, is putting it out there and this is what has been done and this is the evidence, you know, you, you still have to rely on that evidence and what proof you have that it's working and how it can be replicated or not. So I think it's not just saying, you know, the hero and, and doing a profile on someone, which there's room for those stories but I think if, if presenting an alternative is just you know for for governments that it's like it's too expensive or is removing some of those excuses and showing how others have have done it and how it can be done So I actually get this question a lot uh, from readers who are journalists who say who ask me how do I um, how do I maintain my integrity as a journalist while also wanting to do something about this because it affects me and, and will affect my family? And I think it's a super easy answer, which is just keep telling the truth about climate change. All research shows that one of the like one of the best things you can do is talk about it's what you're saying to talk about climate change with other people. And so simply by doing your job as a climate journalist and telling the truth, um, you're doing something pretty radical. Um, I think that the climate crisis and the way it is right now, uh, the fact that we only have you know, 12 years, 11 years to reduce emissions by 50% um, in order to have a 50% chance at uh, staying below 1.5 degrees, that's a problem caused by misinformation, widespread effective misinformation about the climate crisis, about the science. So I, and I truly believe that the only way that you that the best way to fight misinformation is to make the truth louder. So just keep doing journalism. I feel grief and anger that our time together today has drawn to a close, but I also feel hopeful that whatever disagreements there might be on the panel and within the room, uh, we agree on more than we disagree on. And as Adina's research shows, that means that somehow we're gonna get out of this together. And if the last word from the panel is keep doing journalism, I can't think of a better piece of prescriptive advice for this room. So thank you all for your insights. Thank you for your attention and questions and keep doing journalism. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, what's up? I'm